we have sung our praise, we have uh, declared our confidence in the God who has never failed us, never will fail us. Let's, uh, let's again come to him in prayer. Let's confess our sins together and, and bring our petitions uh, before our faithful God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, our sovereign and good God, your ways are so high above our own ways, and your wisdom is so far above our understanding. Your rule is, is just and perfect. Uh, and we confess this morning that, that we've failed to, to love you and honor you alone as, as our King and our Sovereign. Because of, because of our sinful uh, desires, from our own hearts and because of our, our fears and our insecurities, we have, have failed to trust in your goodness. And we've, we've turned away from the truth of your word and, and acted and thought and spoken uh, in ways that were, were disobedient. And instead of fulfilling your, your perfect law uh, by, by loving others, serving others, we've allowed anger and envy, uh, lust and greed to take root. God, we confess that we have acted in, in unbelief and have, have foolishly gone our own way in, in, so many, in so many different ways, large and small, as if, uh, as if we could live independently of our Lord and King. And so we confess our sins now this morning. And we pray that you would forgive us, and by your Holy Spirit, that you would help us become more and more like your Son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you for the assurance that we find in your word, the assurance of, of pardon and forgiveness, where you say, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Thank you, God. What an amazing truth. And God, we, we also this morning, we know that you are a God, not only of South Canyon Baptist Church, not only of, uh, of America, you are God of the whole world. And so this morning we want to lift up the nation uh, of Qatar and we want to pray for the, the nearly three million people there, um, most of whom, the large majority of whom, follow Islam. God, we pray uh, that in that place that more would hear about Jesus, that you would cause uh, your church there to grow, um, and in, in particular that Christians would be able to, to meet together and worship together as we are being able to do this morning God, and that you would just open uh, all the ways, take away all the obstacles. Um, pray that you would help the government there in Qatar to realize that their authority is only given to them by you, and that their role as the government, as the authority who, who bears the sword, that their role is to promote peace and to punish wrongdoing. 
And so we pray that in that, in that country there would be greater religious freedom, there would be uh, less regulation and restriction so that congregations will be able to freely meet in larger groups and find places that they can do so. Um, pray also uh, for uh, gospel radio stations and websites uh, there that, that can reach uh, many people. We pray that they would, they would reach people with the truth of the gospel and that they would bear much fruit uh, in that work as they, uh, as they proclaim the truth to homes all over uh, that country. And God, finally, we pray for us. We pray for South Canyon Baptist Church today. And we pray that the attitude, the character of your son Jesus would be formed in us, not only individually, but corporately as a local body, as a, as a people. God, we pray that this would be to such a degree that others would, would observe and notice and be struck by the difference that we're not like any other group of people that they've seen. That we're not concerned with power or influence or, or gaining things, gaining benefits for ourselves, but instead that we're about loving and serving, acting like our gentle and humble Savior, the one who sacrificed his life for his enemies. God, we pray that you would, that you would do this, that you would make these things true, and we pray these things for your glory and in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, did you ever wish that you could have all the talents, all the abilities, the, the qualities, the, the intelligence, the skill of some, some great person uh, from history? I'm sure any of us in our kind of wildest dreams uh, could, could imagine, you know, whatever it is that, that excites you, whether it would be having, you know, the creativity and the brilliance of a, of a composer like Mozart, or maybe the agility and the strength of an athlete like Simone Biles or Michael Jordan, the, the prolific mind and, and the imagination the talent of, of a writer like Jane Austen or C.S. Lewis, or maybe the entrepreneurial uh, vision of a, of a Steve Jobs or an Elon Musk. Well, the fact is, even greater than, than any of those kind of outrageous hypotheticals, the fact is that God's desire is for, for each and every one of us here in this room to have, have the qualities, the characteristics, the strengths of another person. And in a way, to such a degree that it will radically change us. And God is, is willing to go to great lengths to make that happen. Now that might sound strange to you, or bizarre, or that might sound intriguing, but, but regardless, I hope you'll You'll stay with me and, and listen this morning as we are, we're currently in a series. We're going through the letter of, of Paul to the Philippians. And really from the, the outset, the entire first chapter that we've, we've spent three weeks going through, Paul has, has praised this church for their partnership in the gospel. He's exhorted them to love one another more and more. 
And the Apostle Paul has put himself forward as, as an example of suffering for the sake of the gospel. Because of, of his great love for Jesus and his, his deep desire to see Christ glorified, Paul says that to live is Christ and to die is gain. So he, he holds himself up as, as an example to follow as he follows Christ. And then he's, he's summed up his charge to the Philippians by calling them to, to live and to act worthy of the gospel, to live in a way that is in line with the gospel. And so today we're going to be moving into chapter 2, and Paul is going to simply expand on this charge and go into greater detail about what is a life that's worthy of the gospel. What does this look like? And pointing them, even beyond Paul himself, pointing them to Jesus as the example par excellence of how they should live and who they should be. Uh, so turn with me in your, in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 11. And it's on page 980 in one of the Pew Bibles there. Philippians chapter 2, beginning at the top. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now this is perhaps one of the most beloved and well-known passages in the New Testament. But really, my hope and prayer for us this morning is that that God will show us new, uh, new insights and greater depths, even with such, such a familiar uh, passage that maybe we feel like we, we know pretty well. My prayer is that he'll show us uh, new depths of understanding. Um, certainly that's been my experience in getting to, to study, meditate on this uh, passage this past week. Now, if I could try to summarize what Paul's message is in these, these verses, verses 1 through 11. I'd, I would put it like this, and you'll find this in your, uh, your sermon outline notes, but I would put it this way. Love and serve one another with the mind and attitude of Jesus Christ, the exalted Lord over all. Love and serve one another with the mind and attitude of Jesus Christ, the exalted Lord over all. Now, 
we're going to begin with kind of the first part of that, that statement, love and serve one another. It's point number one uh, in our outline today, kind of covering verses one through four. And Paul starts out here uh, in verses one and two with a kind of an if-then construction. Let me read those first two verses again. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So the idea of an, an if-then construction in this, in this particular passage, it, it's, not, it's not meant to put in any sense put into question whether these things are true. They're not in question. The understanding, it's almost a rhetorical statement, the understanding is that they are true since you have these things, since these things are true. Therefore, do this. As a believer, you, you do have these blessings. You have encouragement in Christ. You have comfort from love. And I believe that's a reference to God's love, the Father's love. You have this participation, this fellowship in the Spirit. And you have this affection and sympathy, which of course comes from God, but also is, is kind of worked out and experienced also horizontally in our relationships with one another as Christians. And so since you have all these things, therefore do this. And he describes that as having the same mind, being united in love and purpose. But before we really get into how Paul is telling us to live, kind of in verses 2 through 4, I want to just pause a moment on these blessings that we see in verse 1. As I already said, you, you do, as a Christian, you have these things. These blessings are yours in Christ. But I also know that for some, you may not feel, these things may not feel as real as you would like them to feel in your, your day-to-day experience. And the fact is that if that's true, then it's, it's going to make it, I think, all the more difficult to do all that Paul is going to be asking of us in, in verses 2 through 4 and then even beyond. So let's just take a moment and consider why, why would a Christian, why would a, a child of God uh, be, be living without as much of a, a sense of these gospel blessings, this, this encouragement, this love, this fellowship and affection. You know, there's a, there's a number of reasons, there's, and, and we, we would never be able to exhaust all of them, but just to, to talk about a few, one would be maybe you're approaching your Christian walk with a more legalistic approach. Maybe, maybe you're looking to the wrong foundation on your, your faith and your life as a Christian, the basis on which you stand. You're looking to, to your striving, to your being enough, your doing all the right things. And if that's true, brother or sister, rest in the righteousness that's been gifted to you in Jesus Christ. Don't view God's attitude towards you as dependent or changing based on your faithfulness. And for some, perhaps it's, it's suffering in your life, uh, pain, trials that, that can really make it hard 
to sense or to feel God's, God's nearness, God's tenderness. You know, this is really what Psalm, Psalms 42 and 43 are all about. And if that's, if that's what you're experiencing right now, know that, that your Savior is able to sympathize with your weakness. He knows what it is to suffer the dark night of pain and agony and even feeling alone or abandoned. And the trial and the hardship is not a sign of his disfavor. And, and for, for many of us, it really in a lot of ways, I think for all of us, our own story, our history, our current life circumstances, the way that we're made up psychologically, all these things, they affect how, how we view ourselves and how then we view the way God relates to us. And so, as we consider these things in verse 1, just know that it's not, it's not a waste of time to understand yourself better and to, and to think deeply through your life and to do those things so that you can allow the gospel and allow God himself to really meet you in the reality of your life. And not to be in hiding or in denial or disconnected from God or from, from others or, or even from yourself. And then, of course, finally in verse 1, we're reminded of our need for affection and sympathy. There's, there's intended to be affection and sympathy in the family of God, the body of Christ. And so we need that from, from those who have responsibility for us, people like parents and leaders and teachers. And we need to have affection and sympathy for those all around us and those who, who are leading us. All these things, these gospel blessings, are, I believe, meant to form kind of a, a basic aqueduct through which our gospel love and our service can flow. So we need to attend to ourselves, attend to our spiritual emotional health, and not neglect those things. So now what does Paul mean by having the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord? Well, this doesn't mean we cease to be individual persons or that we agree on every possible topic or issue. It doesn't even mean we're going to think exactly the same about every point of theology. Because, you see, getting everyone to march in lockstep, that doesn't require a miracle. You know, all you need is just a, a dictatorial leader who says you all have to think and act exactly this way. And then, and then people's unique personalities and, and ideas and tastes are, are all erased. And no, that's, that's a dystopia, right, along the lines of, of Orwell's 1984 but rather, Paul is describing something much more complex and much more beautiful. And it defies human explanation. And he's going to define it. He's going to flesh this out uh, first in verses 3 and 4. Uh, let's just look at those again. Verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. 
So really what, we're going to see, what we see here is two times Paul says, don't do this, but this. So in verse 3, don't do anything from selfish ambition or conceit, but do in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Now humility, we're not talking about kind of a, a false humility where you just try to beat yourself up or, or, or seem morose. Um, humility doesn't mean thinking that you're horrible. It's not having a, a message of, of shame and just uh, thinking that, that you are just completely bad in every way. And it's not, it's not about thinking that everyone is better than you. You know, actually, think about Paul in his writing and Jesus in his teaching. They don't want anything to do with trying to rank who's the greatest, Right? So no, what humility means is knowing your place before God. You are a dependent, frail creature. You are a sinner in need of grace. But you're also a divine image bearer. You're a redeemed saint. If you're a Christian, you are beloved and a child of God, and you have an unimaginably glorious future. And really, we only have to look at Jesus. Jesus knew who he was before God. Even as Satan tried to question that and cause him to to put that into doubt, he was completely secure in his father's love. And out of that strength and identity, he showed humility. And so if you draw on the glorious blessings that you have in the gospel, those things laid out in verse 1, then you can think rightly about yourself, neither too high in estimation nor too low because of your security in Christ, because in him you have inestimable, inestimable riches and love and grace. And so you can, you can look to the needs of others, the concerns of others as significant, so significant, so significant that you're willing to pour yourself out in love to serve them. And then Paul goes on with another, don't do this, but do this. Don't, in verse 4, look only to your own interests, but do also look to the interests of others. And you know, each of us has his own interests. We have our own stuff, our own issues. But is that all that we ever think of? Is that what consumes all of our energy? What about when we, we come to church? You know, possibly your own, your own interest might be that we sing more modern and popular worship music and, and kind of leave out the hymns. They seem kind of slow and wordy and dated. But what about the interests of others? Maybe those hymns might be an encouragement uh, to brothers and sisters in the body who have who've sung those words since they were children. And now, 50, 60, 70 years later, those words reverberate in their hearts and encourage uh, and bless them. Or maybe your interest might be just simply to enjoy the service and be able to chat with close friends and not be bothered with, you know, with serving as, as a volunteer. But again, do we consider the interests of others? Like maybe that young mom and dad with three or four children under the age of five who need others to serve them so they can also pay attention to the service and be refreshed and be encouraged in a really challenging season of life. Now, admittedly, Paul is holding up a high standard here. 
He summarized it as being of the same mind. He's defined what that kind of unity looks like, the way we relate to one another. But how do we get there? And what is this mind? How can any of this be possible? And that leads us into point two, which is have the mind and attitude of Jesus Christ in verses five through eight. Let's just look at verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This is the mind, this is the love that Paul referred to back in verse 2. It's not just that Christ is our model, though he is, or our example, but it's that we're to be characterized by the very mind and attitude of Jesus Christ. Um, The CSB translation um, translates this verse It says, adopt the same attitude as Christ Jesus. The NIV says, have the same mindset. So what we get here is that what Jesus has, God intends that to be in us. And so we're going to see, first of all, this mindset of Christ. It's expressed in him as being in the form of God. His mindset is expressed in the form of God in verses 6 and 7. So in verse 6, he writes, Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So what does this being in the form of God mean? Well, what it means is that Jesus was God before his incarnation, And then never at any point did he cease to be clearly and unmistakably God, fully God. Jesus was in the form of God. We see those words. Meaning he possessed the very essence of God's nature. And he had equality with God, even though he didn't grasp after it. And so then how is Christ's mindset, the mind of Christ, how is it expressed in him as God, as fully God? Well, it's in this way, what Paul says, Jesus, as God, did not grasp after or exploit his equality with God, but emptied himself by taking a servant's form, meaning he became human, he became man. Jesus had the greatest status, the highest privilege, and power that was beyond compare, and he didn't cling to or grasp tightly to that. Instead, he came to serve. You know, this word servant here, doulos, it could also be translated as slave. But even in this this profound condescension and humility, he never ceased to be fully God. We certainly cannot and must not understand emptying himself to mean that he gave up equality with God. Jesus did not empty himself of his godness or divest himself of any particular attributes. No, this this emptying himself describes a a pouring out. The King James uh, translates it, he made himself of no reputation. Jesus laid aside every advantage and chose not to exercise all his rights and privileges as fully God. He took on limitations. Maybe think of it this way. It's addition, right? Addition of, of human nature. Addition of, of weakness and vulnerability. 
being susceptible to all the things that we're susceptible to. Exhaustion, hunger, and thirst. Catching a cold, skinning, skinning his knees. Nosebleeds, nightmares. But it's not subtraction of divine attributes. Addition, yes, but not subtraction. Even though Jesus didn't freely exercise all those attributes and power uh, to the same extent, he didn't take advantage of them during his life on earth. And I think we can understand this in a, in a kind of limited way. Think about a father, and maybe, maybe even a, a little bigger, bigger stronger uh, father than, than me, but think of a father playing football with his, with his young kids. You know, he's not running as fast as possible. None of them would, would ever be able to catch, catch him or stay with him. He's not using all his strength. He's not just going to go plowing into his six-year-old, and he's not going to just tackle his ten-year-old to the ground, right? Now, does that mean that he's no longer an adult, that, he, that he's not still six foot tall and weighs 180 pounds, that he's not faster or stronger? No, but he's not using all the powers and advantages he possesses. He's putting those aside. So Jesus, as, as the one who eternally existed, who had the very essence and nature of God, he humbled himself beyond measure through emptying himself, becoming a man, and coming to serve. And that's how we see the mind of Christ expressed in him as fully God. You know, there's so much about this that we just can't even relate to. Because, you know, no act of humility or service that we could perform would ever come anywhere close to the lowliness displayed in the divine Son taking on human form. And see, that is exactly the point. So no matter how far you could go, it's only a tiny echo. It's only just a faint imitation of your Lord. But that's what we're called to, to have the same mind as Christ, even as we're acknowledging the difference between him and us. So, you know, verses 6 and 7 could be modified like this to, to apply to us. Though you are made in the image of God, do not grasp or exploit the power or influence you have, but make yourself nothing, taking on the lowliest role in order to serve. Now, do you realize that you have power as, as a human being, as an image bearer? You know, every, every human has power, has the ability to influence others. Every person has a voice, even, even a tiny infant, right? Many of you know this very much uh, during this time. But even a tiny infant can exert his or her personhood and use their voice to wake up their parents and get them to, to feed them or change them. And, and every one of us has the ability to influence things and change things in the world. Every person is going to have authority in some shape or form, whether it's just a little boy with his pet dog, right, or catching bugs out in the yard, or whether it's a student who's directing traffic at a crosswalk, or a parent, a business owner, a pastor, member of Congress. God made humans in his image to rule and subdue the world. You know, the, the artist Billie Eilish sings, Try not to abuse your power. 
And that's a good starting place, right? That's a good just basic rule. But God's Word calls us to so much higher than that, to use our power the way that He does, to bless others. Because, friends, this is the thing. When Jesus displayed His mind and His character, not as, not as a grasping, self-serving God, but as one who would pour Himself out sacrificially to serve and bless His people, that wasn't something new. That was Jesus revealing who God is. And who he's always been. And we see this throughout the pages of Scripture as God graciously blesses and rescues and redeems, makes promises to people who are completely undeserving. Jesus displays this mindset, and it is, it is the same as the mind of God because Jesus is God. But the mindset of Christ is also expressed in human form, and we see that in verse 8. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What what does this human form mean? Well, it means Jesus is clearly and unmistakably man. It says he's born in the likeness of man. He's found in human form. So in his incarnation, he took on our human nature. He's fully man, yet without sin. He has, and he always will have, all the characteristics of what it is to be human except for our sin nature. So how is Christ's mindset expressed in him as fully man? Well, it's this way. Jesus as man humbled, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. And that was defined even further as death on the cross. You know, we've already said that when we looked at Jesus as fully God, his, his incredible humility and emptying himself, that's a standard we can never hope to match. But maybe we thought, well, when it comes to Jesus as, as man and, and focusing on this mindset expressed in human form, maybe that's going to be a little easier to attain to. But you know what? If anything, this seems even more impossible. He humbled himself to the utmost, to the point of death, even death on a cross. How can you or I have this level of humility? How can we obey God to such a degree of perfect submission and show that kind of love, that kind of a sacrificial heart? Well, the answer is that I can't and you can't. See, Jesus, he came because none of us could be obedient to God, to love and to worship him as the creator who deserves all glory and thanks None of us could love others and put their needs above our own and reflect God's love in the world. But no, instead, because of sin, because of the brokenness, the rebellion, self-centeredness in our own hearts, each and every one of us had, had fallen short and deserved physical and spiritual death, separation from God forever. But because God's nature is not to grasp or seize what he wants, but it's to graciously give and bless. In love, he sent Jesus Christ, not only to display what God is like, but to die the death and bear the judgment that we deserved. He did it because we couldn't. And now whoever turns from their sin and puts their trust in Jesus is forgiven and brought back into fellowship with God. And as we're about to read, After three days, God raised him from the dead. He exalted him to his right hand. 
and he will one day return again for his church. He will judge the earth. Every knee will bow to Jesus, to the glory of God the Father. And it's only through faith in this Jesus Christ. It's only through the new life he gives, through the Holy Spirit who lives in every Christian, that we can have his character, his mind, as he shapes and changes us day by day. It's only as we're completely humbled at the foot of the cross, humbled by the weight of our sin, the greatness of his mercy, that we can be a new creation, forgiven, and with this new mind being formed in us. So if you've never heard this, this gospel message before, or you've never fully embraced it and put your trust in Jesus, I'd urge you to do that right now, today. And please come up and talk to me afterwards or talk to one of the other pastors or elders. We would love to just talk to you further about what it looks like to follow Jesus and to trust him. Now, Christian, what do you do if you feel discouraged? Because, to be honest, some days this mind that Paul has described seems a far cry from what we see in our own lives. And really, our, our need, our prayer has to be for Christ to be formed in us. Not just to buckle down and work hard, try to be more humble. We need an ongoing change of heart. And that began the moment we believed, and it continues. Philippians 1.6, we heard that the good work that was begun will come to completion. And how can that happen? How do you get Christ to be formed in you? It doesn't just happen by mere willpower. It's not ultimately something you can just work out on your own by your strength. God has to produce change. So in the end, all we can really do is position ourselves. Sit yourself down in front of Jesus, and that's by, by reading about him in his word, by hearing about him, by praising him, by spending time with other people who love to talk about him and maybe have progressed further in their having his mindset in them. Get yourself in front of Jesus so that his character is your greatest influence. Not social media, not a celebrity or an online personality or a politician, but Jesus so that his image is more and more reflected in you. Pray for, for God's spirit to, to guide and shape you. And yes, you can practice, practice thinking with humility, secure in your identity in Christ, and you can practice acting with humility, doing things in love and in service. But at the root of everything, there is, even in this passage, there's a kind of a passive language that's used. Let Christ be formed in you. Let the mindset of Christ be yours. And you know what the result of that is that as change does happen, as growth and more Christ-like behavior is produced, we know it's the grace of God, nothing that we can boast in. And so God gets all the credit, and he gets all the glory. And that leads us to this final point, which is glory, church, glory in the exalted Lord over all. Verses 9 through 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In these last verses, Paul gives us the end of the story. The Son of God who humbled himself, who took on our humanity, who came to serve, he's been highly exalted by God the Father. 
and he's been given the name above every name. And so, just to, to walk through this and explain it quickly, I um, just want to highlight four things really briefly. Jesus' name, his mindset, and then our pattern and our future. So Jesus' name. What's this name that's above every name? It, you know, it's, first it looks like it's the name Jesus, because that's what Paul mentions in the very next sentence. But, you know, Jesus has been his name since it was given by the, the angel before he was born uh, as, a, as a baby. Paul goes on, though, to say that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And I think that's what Paul means by the name above every name. Because you see, the name Yahweh, I am who I am, this personal name, the special name God revealed to Moses in Exodus 3, it's translated uh, as, as Lord, it's translated uh, with the word kurios in the Greek version, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. This is what the New Testament authors would, would read and refer to. And that same Greek word, Lord, or kurios, is used here in, in Philippians 2.11. And Paul really clearly has a specific Old Testament passage in mind, even as he uses this term, Lord. Isaiah chapter 45, it opens, thus says the Lord, and this is Yahweh in the Hebrew, it's Yahweh speaking. And down in verse 23, Isaiah 45, 23, Yahweh says, By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. To who? Well, to Yahweh, to the Lord. And then Paul says in Philippians 2 that every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So Paul is applying Isaiah 45 to Jesus. The claim is that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is Yahweh, the God revealed in the Old Testament. And the Lord is Jesus Christ. So that's Jesus' name, Jesus' mindset. This great exaltation of Jesus as as equal to, to the divine Lord, this isn't just a reward for Jesus being obedient. It's a vindication. It's God's stamp of approval of Jesus as his son who reveals and displays the divine character, the divine nature. His mindset, Jesus' mindset, is that of God. One commentator calls this God's yes to this expression of equality with God. So what is equality with God? What does it look like? What does it mean to have the very essence and form of God? It's not a selfish or grasping deity. No, it's a God who pours himself out in love and service, even to the point of death on a cross. In exalting Christ in this way, God is saying, yes, this Jesus, this Messiah, this Son, he represents who I am and what I am like. And so as we turn to ourselves, our pattern and our future. Our pattern, this path of Jesus teaches us something about our own lives as his followers. And it's this, the cross comes before the crown. Suffering comes before glory. Before exaltation comes lowliness. And you know what that means is we need to be, to beware of wealth or popularity or success or having a big influence or a big platform, whether that's as individuals or as a church or as pastors, because Jesus calls us 
to the way of the cross, not the way of glory. Now, don't get me wrong. Glory will come. It is our final destination. But we shouldn't be seeking after it or expecting it in this life. So actually, if we're, if we're getting glory and it's feeling good and exciting, maybe we need to take a hard look at ourselves and question if we've somehow strayed from the path of humility and service that Jesus is calling us to take. And then finally, our future. We'll close with this. Our future, the good news is that the humility and the struggle does lead to final exaltation and glory. We share in Christ's exaltation because we died with him and we will be raised with him. So Christian, you have an eternal hope and confidence because Jesus has the name above every other name. You have a certain future Later in Philippians 3, it says he will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. And in the meantime, now, we allow our minds and our hearts to be saturated with who Jesus is so his mind, his character will be ours. Because, see, the day is coming when his resurrection body, his glory, his reign over the universe will be ours as well. We will be his bride, united with him, and glorious in splendor. Amen. What, what a glorious hope we have in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, just the glories of who Jesus is, everything that he is for us. Our Savior, our Lord, the one who shows us who you are, But not only that, who brings us back to you through his humility, his death on a cross, so that we could have the qualities, the character, the things that are true of him, that those can become true of us. There is no more glorious and wonderful destiny that that we could ever imagine. We We pray that you would continue to work that out in us, for our good and for our joy and for the glory of Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen.